I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is Maria Maziati-Gillen. She is the winner of the 2014 George Garrett Award for Outstanding Community Service in Literature. That's from AWP. And in 2008, she received an American Book Award for the book All That Lies Between Us. She's the founder and executive director of the Poetry Center at Passaic County Community College in Patterson, and she's the editor of the Patterson Literary Review. Meanwhile, she is also the Bartle Professor at Binghamton University, SUNY, and Professor Emerita of English and Creative Writing. She has published 23 books, and a couple of recent ones are What Blooms in Winter from New York Quarterly Books and Patterson Light and Shadow. Oh, Marie, I'm so glad you have time to do this because I know you are busy. It's wonderful to hear your voice, though. Well, you know, something I want to start with is just mentioning that you do a lot to nurture uh, poetry and poets through the Poetry Center. And I remember when I first met you, it might have been 1999. It was when we had that great weekend when the book Unsettling America was published. That was 94. Oh, my goodness. Okay. But that was, that's still the most outstanding poetry weekend I've ever experienced. It was wonderful, wasn't it? I, I just feel it was one of the highlights of everything. Oh, you managed to get so many people there. And really, A like... six days. Can you believe it? <laughs> well, well, there were these well-known poets, and they got like 10 or 15 minutes because there were so many people there. Do you know that that anthology is still selling? I should it came out in 94, and the other two... Identity Lessons and um, Growing Up Ethnic in America are still selling. Well, they deserve to. You know, and that was... That, was, that doesn't, it, it, that it, doesn't it, happen that yeah. often. Mostly, they last a couple of years and then they go into oblivion. Yeah, but you, so you, I'm thrilled that they're still selling. Ah, oh, they're such wonderful books. And that was such an incredible weekend. So, I met you in 94. Wow. I guess I'm getting older. <laughs> well, that, I feel that way. I can't, that was, I can't possibly have a laugh. And of course... It has. Yeah, yeah. So what what are you uh, doing now? You're, you're teaching in Italy sometimes with workshops and all your other activities here too? Right. Well, I'm, I'm doing a workshop for the University of Calabria in poetry, um, and it's going to be at two different hotels in, in uh, Calabria. One is in the mountainous region. It's just gorgeous. It really is gorgeous. The food is exquisite. The place is beautiful. It's just otherworldly. And then the second week is in Albedona, and that is uh, on the Ionian Sea. Whoa. So between the things, it's very exciting. And in fact, uh, the workshop, the this program is going to be uh, my poetry workshop, Mark Hillinghouse teaching photography, um, Linda Hillinghouse teaching visual art, and um, Margarita Ganeri uh, teaching uh, Christ stopped at Eboli and the Leopard. Wow. So it is going to be, I think, very exciting. It was very exciting last year, but I'm really looking forward to this year, which because it's become even more um, focused on creative creativity. Yeah. So I'm, I'm excited about it. Yeah, and, and mentioning... That's going to be in May, uh, and that's a 
be wonderful. Yeah, and mentioning visual art, this is also, uh, it seems in recent years, you've been exploring uh, visual art. I think uh, you told me once uh, Diane DePrima encouraged you to do that. She did. I really thank her because she forced me into it. We were going to do a reading in Santa Cruz, and she said to me, before we leave San Francisco, uh, I want to stop at the art supply store. I thought she was stopping for herself. And she said, no, you're going to buy art supplies because we're going to paint when we get to Santa Cruz. I knew he had a heart attack. I thought, my God, this famous woman poet, and I'm going to paint, and I can't even draw a straight line. And I got very nervous. So when we got there, she said, okay, you go in your room. I'll go in my room, and we'll paint. So I get in there, and I'm looking at these roses that are outside the window. There's a sliding glass door with roses outside. And I tried to paint them, and I couldn't do it. And I kept ripping up the papers and throwing them in the garbage. And then I said, wait a minute. What do you tell your students? It doesn't have to be anybody else's poem. It just has to be your poem. And it doesn't have to be anybody else's rose, but your rose. And ever since then, I've been having the most wonderful time uh, with the painting. And I've had a real spurt of painting in the last... I've been doing it for about 15 years now, but then the last year and a half or so, I just have had a big spurt of creativity with uh, the art. So it's been fun. And not only is it fun, but I've been selling a lot of paintings. Oh, wow. That's great. Which is kind of amazing since (laughs) I can't draw a straight line. (laughs) Anyway, I'm having a good time. They're very fey. They certainly have (laughs) personalities. Oh, that's super. Well, let's go back to your original art form. Here, a poem. What do you say? Okay. I'm going to read a, a shorter poem called Arturo. It's about my father. Hmm. I told everyone your name was Arthur. Tried to turn you into the imaginary father in the three-piece suit I wanted instead of my own. I changed my name to Marie, hoping no one would notice my face with its dark Italian eyes. Arturo, I send you this message from my younger self, that fool who needed to deny the words WAP, guinea, greaseball, slung like curb spears, the anguish of sandwiches made from spinach and oil, the roasted peppers on homemade bread, the rice pies of Easter. Today I watch you, clean as a cherub, your ruddy face shining, closed by your growing deafness in a world where my words cannot touch you. At 80, you still worship Roosevelt and JFK. Read the newspaper carefully. Know with a quick shrewdness the details of revolutions and dictators, dictators, the cause and effect of all wars, no matter how small. Only your legs betray you as you limp from pillar to pillar. Yet your convictions remain as strong now as they were at 20. For the children, you carry chocolates wrapped in gold foil, and find them always your crooked grin and a five-dollar bill. I smile when I think of you. Listen, America, this is my father, Arturo. I am his daughter, Maria. Do not call me Marie. Hmm. Your dad comes across like such a wonderful guy from, your, really from your poems. Yeah, yeah. He, he was a very arch-liberal uh, he, he he was just wonderful. He really was wonderful. He had a lot of hope yeah. uh, for the world and uh, for what you could do as an individual. 
to change the world, that he really believed that there was nothing there was nothing that anybody could stop you from doing if you made up your mind you were going to do it. Mm. And so that was pretty good because he's poor as a church, church mouse. <laughs> but he, he didn't let that bother him. He had the right attitude, yeah. And pass yeah, it on to you. <laughs> well, I, I don't give up easy. <laughs> I don't think so, no. <laughs> yeah. You know, what I find it, it's so interesting, almost amazing how you can... There's always material. You know, you've been writing about your family and growing up Italian-American for... Honestly, it's about... Yeah. Probably I have a memoir that I've written oh. in poetry that you could string together all these poems, which are really a lot of them about my family and about growing up and um, Italian and uh, about you, my children growing up and losing my husband. It really is the whole... Um, spectrum yeah. of my life is recorded in these books. And I have to say, I have another book almost ready. Wow. Although wants another book for me, I don't know. But I do have another book almost ready. Oh, great. Yeah, but is, is, aren't you sometimes a little bit amazed how you, you think you've written a lot, and then you look back and you remember another incident or another person or, or something else? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, there's an unending supply of material. I think we're all like magpies. Except we collect stories, the stories of people around us, our own story, uh, the voices we hear around us, the kind of things people said. We collect, we collect those, and then they find their way into poems. And sometimes you could write about the same subject more than once, and a different version of that subject comes out. Right. Yeah, you certainly prove. Yes, it's then it's, it's the proof is there. I mean, people do it, and you're certainly doing such a great job of it. It's just so interesting to get the all the angles on your life through your different books. Well, somebody just bought a painting, and they came. Somebody from Philadelphia, and she said, "I want to come and pick up the painting," and she bought all my books. Oh, she, she had all my books, and she wanted him to sign me to sign all the books. <laughs> And her husband stayed about three hours. <laughs> um, so it was very nice. And then she said, wrote me and said, and I love having your, I love having your, um, um, uh, your paintings hanging above my desk. Oh, so wow. I thought it was nice. That is really nice, yeah. It's like just knowing when someone's reading your book. I love it when I get an email. Somebody says, I'm reading your book tonight. <laughs> That's a nice. That's a nice feeling, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. And and you know what's happening, but people don't tell you that often. So it's is really a reward. No, it feels good when they do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, how about another poem? Okay, I'm going to read a poem which is perhaps not quite as hopeful as the other one. Um, and this is a poem about my son, who's an attorney and who is very conservative. What mm. I can't face about someone I love. But my son loves me, but would prefer not to see me too much. Every Sunday night when I call him in North Carolina, we lives with his wife and two children. I can hear the heaviness in his voice, his hello, tempered with impatience, a conversation stiff and stilted, though he think I can talk to a stone. Strangers in buses and trains tell me their life histories. Acquaintances tell me about their affairs and shattered marriages, showing the secret undersides of their lives. Graduate students fight for my attention 
They wanted to sit next to me and carry my bags and fetch my lunch. But my son can't wait to get off the phone with me. I ask him how the children are or specific questions about school. I ask about his wife, his job. He answers one or two words. They're fine or okay or the same. My son is a lawyer. He was always brilliant with language, at least written language, and he can read a 300-page book in an hour and remember every detail. But with me, it turns mute as a stump. If I ask for help with some legal problem, he will give it. But I do not hear in his voice the little I hear in my daughter's voice when I call her. Instead, I hear reluctance as though his attention were focused on a truly fascinating person, and he can't wait to get off the phone. I tell stories that I hope will amuse him, but finally, after struggling and finding no response, I say, well, John, have a good week. Give everyone a hug for me. I know my son has divorced me somewhere deep inside himself in a place he doesn't look at. I am too much for him, too loud, too dramatic, too frantic, too emotional. I laugh too much. I wear him out in a minute and a half. He never saw me again. He wouldn't miss me. And this is what I can't face about someone I love. Whoa. Yeah, that is definitely a hard one. It's so frustrating. That's a hard one. It's so frustrating. Yeah. What can you do about it? You know, you're just Nothing, yourself. but I have to yeah. say, though, Charlie, that um, a couple of years ago, I was getting ready to go up to Binghamton to teach, and I um, slipped on the floor, and I broke my nose, and I ended up in the hospital. So... I get in the hospital, and they want to keep me overnight. I said, no, I, don't, I can't. I have to go teach tomorrow. Well, have you had a broken nose? I had gigantic black eyes. Oh. My face was swollen. I was all black and blue. I looked horrible. And I, I, and I was a little distraught, to say the least. And I get uh, up to Binghamton, and I tell the students, now, look, turn sideways, because I'm going to have to be <laughs> my sunglasses, and you should not have to look at me. And I taught all weekend, 20 hours looking like this and then I spoke to my son and he said I've never heard you depressed before you're not allowed to be depressed you don't Ooh. get to I don't I don't get depressed I always think oh I can take care of this and so he said to me he was very upset I think that I was not I was feeling yeah. fragile and so he said to me he, he said he, was, he didn't want me to be upset and then uh, a little while later he sent me a text and he said, uh, I wanted you to have Dylan Thomas's poem, Do Not Go Gentle, Gently Into, Gently into That Good Night, because I think that it really says what you usually, you usually feel about your life. And I want to see you like that again. So I, mm. what I realized is I thought he doesn't understand anything about me, because he always say, oh, you're doing too much. Give up your poetry, which I would give up my arm before <laughs> I would give up my poetry. And... But he understood enough to know that I needed to hear that poem. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, he's, he has, as his own children are growing up, now he understands a lot more about me than he did before. Oh, yeah, that is, uh, that, that's actually an encouraging anecdote. He's, he's, yeah, I mean, I, you know, and I have new poems about him, about the yeah. thing. And one day he came, uh, I, I was sitting with my daughter, and she had come down from Boston, and it was the two days before Christmas, and she had made me, my daughter's a doll, and she had made me um, uh, bacon and eggs, and I'm sitting there drinking my espresso, and I look up, and my son is standing in the doorway. 
and I started to cry because I didn't know he was coming. Hmm. They had planned it as a surprise, and I just didn't expect to see him there. And, I mean, I just started crying my eyes oh. out. <laughs> and uh, I was so thrilled to see him. It was such a wonderful... He couldn't have given me a better Christmas gift if he had yeah. given me something like a Mercedes-Benz. It wouldn't have meant as much to me as seeing him stand in that doorway. Beautiful. But yes. I didn't expect him. Oh, yeah. So it was a very nice thing. Uh, yes, yes, yes. That's the thing. The poem captures a moment, a, a feeling and a moment, but then there are lots of other things around There are it. lots of other things and lots of other moments. Right. I think the interesting thing about my work is that you can see the different moments. Yeah. In my first books, I'm, you know, I, I'm trying, my mother was bossy as I am bossy. And, you know, I, I was resenting that. And then you see as my poems go on that I begin to rely more and more on my mother and more and more, I have more and more understanding of her and what she went through and how difficult her life was and how she kept an optimistic spirit no matter what happened to her. So, you know, it took me a long time to get there, but you can see in my books as mm -hmm. I get to understand her better, I'm sort of, I'm sort of understanding myself better, too. Yeah. Well, let's do another poem. I, I want to read this poem, although it's a very bleak poem, I have to say, but um, my husband died uh, ten, 10 years ago, mm. and um, uh, right after he died, the, I couldn't write anything about him because it was just too painful, but then the BP oil spill happened at the same time, and I was teaching a workshop. I teach a, a, a writing intensive workshop at um, a, a retreat house in Mendham a couple of times a year with Laura Boss, my friend and poet. Mm -hmm. And I teach that workshop, and I was teaching that workshop, and I started writing about the BP oil spill, and suddenly I was also writing about my hus husband, because I think all griefs are connected, and whether it's a grief for what we've done to the world to try to wreck it, or grief over losing, losing my husband to 47 years, they're all kind of connected to one another. So one helped me to understand the other. Watching the pelican die. On TV, I watched the pelican with its mouth wide open, its wings and body coated with, oil, coated with oil. Is it screaming? I do not hear the sound. And since this is a photograph, I don't know if it was caught in recognition in that mouth stretched howl when it died or if it's howling in recognition that it cannot survive the thick coat of oil that bears it down. Lays who take care of you when I'm gone, tell me you are having trouble. His hands, they say, his hands. When I come home, I see your hands have turned black at the tips and the ends of your fingers have been eaten away. I watch the dead bird in the gulf floating on top of the water, its legs stiff and straight in the air, its body drained of all motion all night. The announcer on CNN says, BP didn't want the photographer to take pictures of a dying bird covered as they are with the black slick of oil. They were hoping, he says, the birds would sink and the evidence would be swallowed by the ocean. In late afternoon, I hear my daughter cry out. I rush to see what's happened. You are stretched out on the bed. Your body's so thin, you look like a boy. I call 911 and the ambulance takes you to the hospital. BP is trying to put a cap on the speeding oil rig. CEO keeps saying, it's no problem. 
clumps of oil wash ashore and float on the surface of the water. The beach is littered with dead fish and birds. At the hospital, they want to know whether we want extraordinary measures. No, I say, he has a living will. We'll go around while they admit you. You have forgotten how to speak. Mostly lying in bed, staring into a space above our heads. I reach out to hold your hand, stroke your forehead. Dennis, I call out, Dennis, you do not hear. The neurologist arrives. Well, he says, he should have been dead five years ago. What did you expect? You shouldn't have taken such good care of him. We did everything we could, the BP president says, looking directly at the, at the camera. It's not such a calamity. We don't need to stop. People are drilling. Our economy will collapse if we do. The social worker tells us, tells me, you should put him in a nursing home. My brother tells me, catch him home all this time. If he gets a little stronger, I'll let him go home, and he'll be around the things he knows. Another doctor arrives, and he says, he's not going to make it. The social worker admonishes us with her bag of common sense. She does not love you. We take you home. I sit next to you and hold your hand. The MSNBC reporter stands on the beach in a hurricane and picks up a huge glob of oil with a stick. Look, she says, look, and drifts the oil on the white sand. She's shaking with fury at such destruction. Dead birds float by behind her. I'm in so much pain, you say. You have not complained before. We feed you a jar of baby applesauce. You open your mouth and accept the food. When I see the pelican on TV with its mouth wide open in horror, I remember you as you lay dying. On the gulf, the earth and the sea are being destroyed, just as you were for the disease that finally defeated you. Some things are bigger than all of us. We cannot defeat them. If there is enough carelessness and greed in the world, even the ocean can be destroyed. And you who fought against this illness with such courage, even you cannot survive the blackened tips of your fingers, the oil heavy on the bird's feathers, the birds dead and floating on the surface gradually sink and disappear. Oh, I'm so glad you chose to read that. It, it's so... Uh, extremely bleak, it uh, is, but, but, uh, it's, but it's also a, a grief cry, basically. Oh, it's so powerful. Both for him and for the earth and for everything we've done to wreck it. Yes. And for the way we continue to do it. No matter all the evidence to the contrary, we keep going. Um, we can't do anything about human lifespan, but we could try not to wreck the earth if we if we just thought about it a little yeah. bit. Yeah, it's a, it's a really wonderful poem. Thank well, you, Charlie. It really is, yeah. I think it's one of your best. And the complexity, the beautiful way it goes back and forth. Uh, between Dennis, it was a little risky, but I, I felt I couldn't help it. I had to. Yeah, so, might really, have been a little bit risky, but it needed to be done. Yeah, and, and it worked out. It really works. Yeah. Would you like to do one more? We've got time if we want to to do do one more. One short one, maybe. Yeah, sure. That'd be good. Okay. The lace tablecloth and the patterns of memory. My mother came from Italy. She brought with her a trunk full of linens. She had embroidered her appliqued, lace she had crocheted into tablecloths and dresser scarves. My mother packed them in a large metal trunk, and each year she added sheets she bought with pennies saved from her 25 cents an hour job in the factories of Patterson. 
I used the tablecloths and linens in all the years of our marriage when we had company or on holidays. And after we eaten together in my dining room, my mother would take them home to wash and iron and bring them back white and starched and pristine. My mother died 22 years ago, my husband in 2010. Today I opened the drawer where I keep the lace tablecloths and linens and see my husband and me as a young couple. My husband handsome with his high cheekbones and gray eyes. My mother, father, sister, still alive and vibrant. Our children and our nieces and nephews, all there. I see in the lace pattern the pattern of our lives, the way it winds in and out, connecting all who came before, love and marriage and grief woven into, woven into the threads. And know that all the people I have loved are tucked away carefully in my mind, so I can live them out, lift them out, and remember and be comforted. Oh, great! Yes, oh, I'll be like. Yes, we'll we'll end on that note. Uh, let me just close us out here. I uh, want to tell you folks that you are listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm your host, Charlie Rossiter, and our featured poet today is Maria Maziati Gillen. A true delight to have you here, Maria. Thank you, dear. It's a pleasure to be on, I have to say. Now, I'd like to call your attention to a new book by David Graham, The Honey of Earth, from Terrapin Books. David is an interesting fellow. He's one of these guys who has an extensive email list to which he mails poems almost daily. And I have to say, it got my attention how often I think the poems he forwards are really good. So something about his choice in poems attracts me. So I was very happy to see he has a new book and to be able to talk about it. David's a contributing editor for Verse Virtual. That's a monthly online poetry publication. You may want to check out Verse Virtual. He taught for many years at Ripon College in Ripon, Wisconsin, a lovely little liberal arts college out there. But now, as I say, he's in upstate New York. David's poems have a quiet honesty and insight. I would say that sometimes it may take you a while to notice how much is in them, more than you at first may think. And there's also humor. By the usual practice, I'm going to read you a little bit from the book, and you can make your own decision. Here, I'm excerpting from this poem, leaving out a few stanzas, Why I Love America. Like America, I love having reasons I don't need. Like I love the smell of American bubblegum and the imperial amazement of interstates. We invented interstates, world. And of course I love blues and jazz and Charles Ives and his crazy fedora, not to mention Abe Lincoln and Ray Charles. We created Abe and Ray. I love how we take everybody in and make them American if need be, from Charlie Chaplin to Bob Hope and Neil Young. And we have the best Cary Grants in the world. I love skateboards, Motown, self-serve gas, the Outer Banks, and a certain valley... In Virginia, filling at dusk with fireflies. Do they even have fireflies in Egypt? Mexico? I love that Ben Franklin invented the glasses I'm wearing. 
and that he started lending library and even now appears on a hundred dollar bill. And isn't it great how we can call him Ben? You may wonder just how sappy I can get if there's anything I don't love about America. Truth is, I hate America just as much as you. Granddad America spouting racist nonsense and there's always a need to hate Wounded Knee, Vietnam, Selma, Jackson State, Kent State. Separate but equal Guantanamo Trail of Tears. But if all you ever do is name Hiroshima and not I Have a Dream, always relocation centers and never West End Blues, you risk thinking that's all in any way. It's all being swept down the big muddy along with Ty Cobb and Scott Joplin. And even old Andrew Carney, that heartless penny-pinching Scott, that America transformed into a philanthropist at the end. Thank you, Andrew, for my hometown library. So thank you, America, for being big enough to take in all praise and all blame, sin and glory, without filling up as the Mississippi and Hudson run into the sea. And yet the sea is not full. That's why I love America. By David Graham, reading to you from The Honey of Earth. Another recent project of David's was a an anthology co-edited with uh, the Wisconsin poet Tom Montag. The book is called Local News, Poetry About Small Towns. I mention that because this next poem is definitely uh, about being in a small town. It's called Tim's Tale. These faded little towns you drive through in Georgia, Ohio, Minnesota, the hills of western Pennsylvania, upstate New York, everyone looks about the same to you. Everyone, with its seedy auto body shop, full graveyard, its three churches and seven bars, not to mention the shuttered department store, big old houses that have seen better days, vacant lots where something or other burned down years ago. Skinny boy in his driveway practicing layups. Most beautiful shots you've ever seen. Then some guy with the name of Tim embroidered in red on his work shirt. Looking and looking at you in the Walgreens, where you stop for some aspirin and a soda. He's staring so hard because surely you remind him of someone he went to school with, but hasn't seen for 45 years. Moved to Texas, he heard. But after all this time, who knows? He's trying to decide whether or not to greet you with your old name. While you ponder whether or not you'll accept it. Or just shake your head and turn away. Some poetic words from David Graham from his new book, The Honey of Earth. You're listening to Poetry Spoken here. I am your host, Charlie Rossiter. Please be with us again next time to let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Mundley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. 
For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com. <laughs>